As we talk about, are you a super fan? We're going through the book of Acts and we're studying Paul and Peter and how they're a super fan of God and how we need to have the same type of super fan for our God. And so each week we're contrasting it in a world in which we are full of super fans for lots of different reasons, lots of different things. Last week it was sports and this week, any guesses? Video games, right. And if you're not familiar, this video game thing is huge. And so we have a video in which we're going to show you a super fan of video games. Take a look. Sports guy, and it was a kind of a way to connect, you know, traditional sports and uh, that type of market with with esports. So I've been playing video games like since regular Nintendo. I think personally, it's like the best age to be at playing video games because I've kind of grown along with the technology. Um, like I first played regular Nintendo, then Super Nintendo, then N64, you know, then moving on to the original Xbox, and that's kind of where I think everything started to really pick up. I'm such a competitor that it was another outlet for competition. And then like I kind of was introduced to the esports competitive scene once StarCraft 2 came out, just because my buddies and I were always playing and uh, we really just kind of fell in love with like the ranking system. And at the time, like it was just when I had left from Butler and I came over to Utah and it was honestly a way for us to still hang out while playing video games, like while I'm still in Utah. So it was, it was awesome to be able to connect with that. And at the same time, like I said, they introduced me into the, that scene. I think for sure there's so many similarities between esports and traditional sports. Obviously the pressure is huge. I mean, you're playing a lot of times for money. Uh, you're playing, playing to move on in the tournament. You're playing to get a job sometimes. And that's the same thing for basketball. I mean, if you don't perform, then you could be cut. Um, you have to maintain uh, your performance level throughout the season. And some people, I think, look at esports and think, well, it's not a physical sport. But I mean, I think it's very, very mentally draining. And, and that part is tough. That's very tough. And although you're not running up and down, jumping, you know, that's still tough on your body. I think it's really cool that esports is getting all this publicity. It's only going to get bigger. I think it's a generational thing, and um, the new generation loves video games. They love tech. It's awesome to me that now everyone's starting to see what I've seen for a long time. 
I think it's going to get to a point where maybe you might have like the Utah Jazz of esports or something like that, you know, where guys maybe grow up thinking one day I'll play for this organization. Like to me, that's really cool. And I think that for the future, that's definitely possible. So I'm excited about what, what the future holds for esports. Wow. <laughs> that's incredible. Esports is a sport that is on the rise so much so that last year's World Championships 2018 that was held in Canada it was an international championship. There's a picture here. The winning pool prize was $25 million. That's incredible to think about this. People can be just as big of a fan, a super fan of video games as they are of sports. And we all know what it's like because I'm willing to bet that at least every single one of us in this room remembers that very first time they got to pick up and hold a console controller in their hands to start to play that game, to be immersed into that culture and seeing these vivid stories start to unplay before your eyes and the joy that you felt as you became captivated working your way through level and level and the frustration, the anger you felt when you couldn't make it past a level or you came up to an opponent that you couldn't beat and then the joy once you were able to get past that and then the depression when you realized the game was now over and what next? But then the joy that replaced it again, knowing you could play the game all over again on the next hardest level setting. The emotional roller coaster that video games have. And it's so much so that it becomes almost an addiction for some people. That they're entranced, that they're just drawn to video games and becoming such a big part of their lives. They spend time and resources and money. They neglect relationships and health in order to play because that's how big of a fan they are. And there are some crazy fans of video games and even a step further of consoles themselves. Being a former high school pastor, I would hear all the time, no, this is better, no, this is better. So I think before I go any further, I need to kind of gauge my audience this morning. If you feel that Xbox is the only way to play a game, please raise your hand. Okay, no Xbox lovers in here. If you feel that PlayStation is the winner, that you should be doing PlayStation, Oh, this went a lot better in my head. All right. Uh, okay, let's, let's take it back then. Let's say if you like Nintendo. Okay, there we go. The old cartridges that you have to come and blow out and put back in. Yeah, see? Getting some laughs now. There we go. Uh, if you're a Sonic fan, there's Sega. Some of you maybe like Sega. Okay, well then let me take it a step back further, you know, just because I, I felt that I should do my research. And if you've ever played or enjoyed an Atari... There it goes. All right. Woo. Love it. Now, I wanted to also go one step back further, back to 1972, when the first controller is called the Magnavox. Ooh, man. Video games have come a long way since this time, right? That is incredible to think about. But regardless of your preference, regardless of what platform that you like to play on or don't play, maybe you're a PC person or a Mac person instead of a controller or a console person, it doesn't really matter where you lie. It's we all know what it's like to be captivated by these games, to be super fans so much so that it starts to control every piece of our lives. You know, my wife Tiffany and I, we uh, have this tradition we're on Saturday nights right after dinner. We get together and we play Halo. We're, we're Xbox people. We love the game Halo. And we'll sit there and we'll play it for hours upon hours upon hours. And next thing you know, it's 4 a.m. on Sunday morning and you have to preach in less than five hours. <laughs> um, but uh, we, what I've realized in us playing these games is that how much different would my life be if I spent just as much time, just as much financial resources an investment into my relationship with God as I do into games. 
How different would my life be if I truly became a super fan of God rather than a super fan of games? The reason why we showed you this video, and thanks to Matt Corba for putting that together, the reason why we show you this video and the reason why we kind of talk all about this is because we're in this series from the book of Acts called Are You a Superfan? And if you happen to miss last week, Pastor David, he defines superfan as this. It's a person who has an extreme or obsessive admiration towards a person or a thing. An extreme or obsessive admiration towards a person or a thing. And people can be super fans of sports. They can be super fans of games. But maybe we should start being super fans of Jesus. Just like we saw the apostles and the disciples. And we actually see this in the book of Acts. So this morning, we're going to take a look at Acts chapter 16, verses 13 through 40. So if you have your Bibles or your tablets, please open up there. And we're going to get started with that in just a second. But before we dive into that, I kind of want to set the stage or the scene a little bit for our story this morning. See, Paul and Barnabas, they had just returned home from their very first missionary journey. Now, if you're unfamiliar with the missionary journey, it's where a church would send people out to go and spread the word of God. And during this time, one of the largest churches that would do this was the Church of Antioch. And it would raise up, it would train, it would financially support, and then they would send off these group of people to go into the port cities and the trade towns, the most heavily populated areas, to preach the word of God. And they would start in the synagogues and the temples, talking to the Jews, and then they would move into the streets and in the marketplaces and the communities to start talking to the non-Jews. They would start to rise up leaders and get people just so on fire for this movement of Christ that they would want to continue it going even when the missionaries left. And so they would raise up these leaders, and when they felt that they had been trained enough, they would go and they would move on to the next town and then the next town, and the next town, and they could be gone anywhere from one to four years before finally coming back to the church that sent them out. And in this case, it was the church in Antioch. And so when Paul and Barnabas get back, they begin to tell the church of all of the amazing things that God had done on their first missionary journey. All the lives that he had saved, the transformations they saw, the healings, the miracles, the wondrous feats that only God could do. And they were excited, and they were telling this story to the church. And Paul tells us that as he's telling this story, suddenly he has this overwhelming vision that comes upon him. And he says, I felt God calling me to go to Europe. And I don't know about you, but I feel like God is calling me to go to Europe all the time. <laughs> Just maybe for some different reasons. Um, but he's, he has this internal call that he's supposed to go to Europe. And so he talks to the church and they agree. They said, yes, you know, Europe is a place that doesn't really have a whole ton of Christianity spreading at this point in time. So let's send you off. So he takes himself and this, his band of merry men, which was Luke and Silas and Timothy, and they head off towards Europe. And once they get there, they land in this little tiny town called Philippi or Philippi, however you want to pronounce it. And typically their tradition is when they landed for the first time that they would go into the synagogues and the temples and start preaching to the Jewish people. But there was a problem. You see, Christianity was new to this part of the world and there was no temple yet. There was no synagogue yet. So according to culture and tradition, it said that if these things don't exist, the next best place to preach the word of God would be at a field under open sky by a sea or by a river, because that's where we saw Jesus teaching a lot. So the guys got together and they headed on down to the river and they finally found themselves by this riverbank. But when they approached, they noticed something interesting. There was already a group of people there reading the Old Testament almost like God had preordained this scenario to happen. So let's take a look. Let's pick up with Acts chapter 16, starting with verse 13. If you'd follow with me. 
On the Sabbath, we went outside the city gate to the river where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. And one of those listening was a woman named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth from the city of Thyatira, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. And when she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us into her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. So Lydia and her household, the members of her family, they're down by the river seeking to have a relationship with the Lord. And I'm sure that they probably struggled as they were reading through the Old Testament, not knowing what some things meant or how to really understand it in their lives. And lo and behold, here comes this group of guys sent from the church to answer any questions. And they start to preach and they start to minister and share the gospel message with them. And they open up their hearts to receive it. And as soon as Lydia and her family place their faith in the gospel, immediately their sins become washed away. The joy of their salvation starts to overflow in their souls so much so that they want to do something more. They want to take the next step. So it says that Lydia, her family, her servants, the entire household goes into the river and they get baptized. And then they all travel back to her house in this amazing celebration right afterwards. What a great first day on the mission field. What a great first few hours on the mission field. God was on the move in the city of Philippi. God was doing some amazing things right out the gate as soon as they landed. But the problem is that oftentimes in life, when we see these moments of spiritual success, these moments when we're lifted up and we're on a spiritual high, it's followed by a spiritual attack. And things start to come our way, including trouble. And that's exactly what they found themselves in. Look at this next part in 16 through 18. Once when we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune telling. And the girl followed Paul and the rest of us shouting, these men are servants of the most high God who are telling you the way to be saved. She kept this up for many days. Finally, Paul became so troubled that he turned around and he said to the spirit, in the name of Jesus, I command you to come out of her. And at that moment, the spirit left her. So just picture this. There's this woman who's following behind them, who's yelling at the top of her lungs. These people are from Jesus. They're great. Listen to what they have to say. The problem was that what she's saying isn't technically a lie. What she's saying, there was nothing wrong with. What the problem that existed here for Paul was he didn't want people to associate what they were doing. He didn't want people to associate the work of God with this well-known fortune teller. More specifically, he didn't want people to say, well, the power of God is tied to the power of Satan. And so after several days of her following them and yelling, Paul just has enough. And I just imagine as he just turns around and he just loses it. He snaps, right? He yells, he's like, spirit, I command you to leave this woman. And instantaneously it leaves. And I'm sure there's kind of like shock, like, well, that actually happened. Like that actually worked. But even more, there's excitement and amazement and realizing, man, we've not only just saved an entire family, but now we've been able to cast out demons. In addition to all the things that we don't even know about that probably aren't included in scripture here. God was definitely on the move and the gospel was starting to take root in the land of Philippi. But this is where the real trouble begins. Look at this next part. 
When the owners of the slave girl realized that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas, dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. And they brought them before the magistrates and they said, these men are Jews and they're throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten. That escalated really quickly. See, for Paul and Silas, the reason why they got in trouble is because they started messing with the income of this fortune-telling woman. By casting out this spirit, this demon that lived inside of her, they removed her ability to foresee the future and therefore her ability to make money. And inadvertently, the income of the people who owned her. And whenever you start messing with someone's finances, people are bound to get angry and make a scene. And so these guys, the owners, they come up and they start yelling at Paul and Silas and all of them there saying, how dare you do this? You are ruining our livelihood. And they're trying to find something that they really can accuse them of or some way to get them arrested. But the problem is they really can't. They can't, they don't have any proof of it. And so as we've seen all throughout the book of Acts in the last 16 chapters, when you can't find something wrong, what do you do? You make it up. And it's exactly what these guys did. Oh yeah, these guys, they're, they're perverting our way of life. They're corrupting our system. They're, uh, they're a threat to society and our culture and they must be removed. These outsiders from a different land, they need to be removed. More importantly, they need to be imprisoned. And they rile up the crowd so much that the magistrates, the leaders, they see this and say, we need to take immediate action before this gets out of hand. Because there's almost a riot and a revolt about to take place in the land. And so they grab Paul and Silas, they have them stripped, and they have them beaten. But look at how Paul and Silas respond to this. After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison, and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. Upon receiving such orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. And about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. And Paul and Silas knew what it was to be a super fan of Jesus. In the midst of their pain, in the midst of their suffering, what do they do? They start singing praises. They start rejoicing in the name of Jesus Christ. And the reason why is because they knew what a super fan was all about. Last week, Pastor David said a super fan knows the team, everything they stand for and what they're all about. See, Paul and Silas knew that God was bigger than their circumstance. He was bigger than their situation, that God is bigger than our sufferings. He is bigger than anything this world tries to throw at us. And he is bigger because he has something far greater in store for us that we don't even know that he's doing behind the scenes. God is orchestrating one of the most beautiful events to unfold in our lives and the world will do whatever it can to prevent that from happening. Satan will do whatever he can to stop the power of God from moving in our lives and in the world at whatever cost. And for Paul and Silas, the cost was to be beaten was to be stripped, to be beaten, and to be chained up. And this just wasn't any light beating. No, we know during this time, they were beaten by a group of people called the lictors. It's where we get the phrase to get your licks from. These guys were skilled craftsmen in their trade. They knew how to work a whip. And they beat Paul and Silas so severely, it turned their back into this bloody mush of flesh that was just open and exposed. And if that wasn't worse enough, as they're sitting there bleeding, they take them and they now drag them through the prison and throw them into the innermost darkest part of the cell. 
And if that wasn't enough, they take them down and they shackle them. They chain them up with no hope of escape. And I'm sure in that moment, they felt defeated. They felt hopeless. They felt, man, our situation is greater than we can bear. This suffering is more than we can handle. And they maybe wanted to give up, give up on God, give up on life. Who knows? As I think about this, it reminds me of something in, in the game Halo. Tiffany, like I said, we love playing this game Halo. And there's a creature in this game, if you've ever played it, that you may know very well called the Hunter. And it's actually got a different name that's super hard to pronounce, so I won't even try it. But we all lovingly refer to it as the Hunter. And as you see it, it's just this intimidating force. At first glance, it's just this well-fortified, glowing, beaming eyes with this plasma cannon. The hunter itself stands about 12 feet tall, weighs 10,000 pounds, has this armor all over its body, this massive shield. It moves really quickly. It's got this plasma cannon that just is this destructive force in life. And all of the artificial intelligence, the AI in the game, they have one of two responses to the hunter. You'll either find them cowering in fear behind a crate because they see the hunter and they're terrified of it. Or you find the brave ones actually running towards the hunter, but they don't even make it close before they're destroyed or thrown across the room. And it just leaves you and your co-player to tackle this beast. And the thing about the hunter is that the hunter always wants to show a sign of force to you. So no matter where you are running around the level, the hunter is always facing you with his shield up, with his eyes beaming into your soul. And it's terrifying when you first see it. I have permission to share this, but every time that we play a level with the hunter and we turn the corner and we see the hunter, Tiffany screams. Because it's terrifying. And she's like, no, I I don't want to deal with this. It's easier just to go past it to move beyond it. And sometimes that's how it is in life, that it's easier for us just to move past these large obstacles, the things that make us afraid, the things that when we look at face to face make us already feel defeated like the game is over. But what we have learned in playing Halo over the last couple years is that if you stay in the fight, that if you go head to head with the hunter, yeah, it's going to cost you some resources. Yeah, it's going to hurt. It's not going to be pleasant. It's going to be very painful. But eventually you'll find that the hunter has a weak spot. See, the hunter always wants you to see its front side. I have a little action figure of it here. The hunter always wants you to see its front side because that's where it's the most fortified, where it's the most armored. And it always moves, it pivots wherever you are so that way you can see it. To give you a size comparison, this is kind of like what it looks like. It's this massive beast that travels everywhere you go. But what it doesn't want you to know is that if you work your way through to the backside, there's a weak spot. See, right behind its armor, there's about an inch and a half to two inch gap in its armor where its skin is exposed. And you can take and throw a grenade in or you can shoot it or you can punch it. And the hunter goes down like it never even had armor to begin with. And as I was writing this sermon and I was thinking about the hunter and as Tiffany and I were doing a research and playing this last night for the sermon, um, I couldn't help but think of Satan. Satan is the hunter. That's what he is. Satan always wants to stare you right in the face to intimidate you, to overpower you, to make you feel like the game is already over to make you feel defeated like there is no hope and that he's just going to keep pushing at you. He's going to keep throwing pain at you at whatever cost. And there's nothing that you can do to defeat him. But what he doesn't want you to know is that if you choose to stay and you choose to fight through the pain, that Satan has a weak spot and that's Jesus Christ. That there is a place in Satan that can be conquered by Jesus. 
that Jesus can come in. And if you claim power in the name, victory in the name of Jesus, you will be able to conquer the hunter of your life like it never even existed. And this is exactly what Paul and Silas experienced that night as they were in prison. They're sitting there and they're singing praises to God because they know that is Satan's weak spot. That Jesus is his weak spot. And so they sing all the louder. Now they didn't have any reason to believe that God was going to save them. Yeah, of course he did it for Peter in a miraculous turn of events earlier in the book of Acts. But if we also remember, Stephen was stoned and James has just been martyred for his faith. So there's no reason for them to believe that God would show up and help them in their situation. But they still praise God because they're super fans in the midst of their weakness. And because of it, God showed up in such an amazing and mighty way. Look at this as we continue in our passage. It says, suddenly there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And at once all the prison doors flew open and everybody's chains came loose. The jailer woke up and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, don't harm yourself. We are all here. The jailer called for the lights, rushed in and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. And he then brought them out and he asked, sirs, what must I do to be saved? They replied, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in his house. And at that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. And immediately he and all his family were baptized. And the jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. And he was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God. He and his whole family. (laughs) Not only did they praise God in the midst of their pain, but they even decided to stay when they could have run. They decided to stay in the prison and preach. And as a result of it, this jailer and his entire family became saved. You see, for them, they knew what the true definition of a super fan was. And it's this, a super fan is someone who supports their team, even in the down years, because they know that something greater exists on the other side. Something greater is in store for them on the other end of all of it. And Paul and Silas, man, they could have gotten depressed. They could have gotten overwhelmed. They could have given up in the ministry. They could have shut their mouths and run away, but they decided to stay in it because they knew that there was something greater for them. Because they knew that the power of Jesus Christ, the gospel of Jesus has the power to save. The gospel of Jesus has the power to set us free from whatever captivates us. The power of the gospel of Jesus, it empowers us to push through any suffering that we may be facing. And the gospel of Jesus Christ prevails when all else seems lost in life. This is what they knew because they were super fans of Jesus. And the rest of this story, it has this ironic twist to it. When we look at all of it, the the magistrates, the leaders, they know that they're no longer in prison, but they find out that they're still in the vicinity of the jailer. And they could have ordered the jailer to have them thrown back in jail and beat them even more severely. But they were so shaken by not only just the earthquake, but by the fact that Paul and Silas decided to stay and continue preaching, even though they were released, they became slightly afraid. And they said, we want these people out of our city. We want them out of our town. We're going to force them to leave. So look at this in Acts 16, 35. When it was daylight, the magistrates sent their officers to the jailer with the order, release those men. The jailer told Paul, the magistrates have ordered that you and Silas be released. Now you can leave, go in peace. 
But Paul said to the officers, they beat us publicly without a trial, even though we are Roman citizens. And they threw us into prison. And now do they want to get rid of us quietly? No, let them come themselves and escort us out. Ooh, Paul can be fierce. <laughs> Paul knew what it was to support his team in the down years. He says, uh-uh. That's not how this is going to go, because if we leave this city with our tail tucked between our legs, it's going to prove to people that we're lawbreakers. We haven't broken any laws. We have done nothing wrong. So you're going to tell your top officials, the highest level of government, that they're going to give us a personal escort out the city because we have done nothing wrong. And so look at how they respond. This is awesome. It says the officers reported this to the magistrates. And when they heard that Paul and Silas were Roman citizens, they were alarmed. They came to appease them and escorted them from the prison, requesting them to leave the city. And after Paul and Silas came out of prison, they went to Lydia's house where they met with the brothers. And they encouraged them and then they left. <laughs> what a crazy turn of events, right? I just imagine this scene, these magistrates, these leaders come up, uh, excuse me, Mr. Paul, Mr. Silas, um, we're sorry. <laughs> We've made a grave mistake. We didn't realize that you were Roman citizens. Our bad. Oops, sorry. Please don't have any hard feelings against us. Let us escort you out. This would be a great moment for all of us to learn. Thanks, bye. Right? It's probably this very awkward scenario, but nevertheless, they take them and they escort them out of the city. And the reason why this is so important, because it just goes to show us that if we decide to be super fans of Jesus and stay in the fight, even when things get tough, even in the down years, God's going to do something amazing through it. That God is orchestrating the most beautiful events that we don't even know behind the scenes. That if we stay faithful and commit to him, he is faithful to provide. And I'm sure that they go back to Lydia's house and as they're at Lydia's house, they begin now to tell about all the things that they had experienced. They're giving this account recollection of all the wondrous miracles that God's done. Maybe they talk about the interrogation from the magistrates. They talk about being thrown into prison. They probably talk about being beaten. Maybe they act out the earthquake and they laugh at the jailer's embarrassment. And they, maybe they start singing some praises to God. Maybe they start singing some of the jail songs that they sung while they were held captive in suffering. Who knows what it was, but what we do see here, more important than anything else, is that they continued to praise Jesus. And on this day, this Lydia, this merchant, this ex-demon-possessed woman, we see the jailer, we see the guards, we see all of these people have now come to the faith. And these are the very people that make up that first church in Philippi, which becomes one of the most prominent churches in all of Europe. Male and female, slave and free, rich and poor. Everybody came together to praise God. They were all united in their sufferings and what they had to deal with in their life. And so as we look at this, we have to ask ourselves the question, are we really super fans of Jesus? It's easy to be super fans of sports, of games. It's easy to be a super fan of Jesus when things are going well. But when things take a turn for the worst in life, when we suffer, are we willing to stay in it? Are we willing to push through it? Are we willing to say, God, yes, I'm suffering. God, I'm going through this hardship. Maybe it's a relationship. Maybe it's finances. Maybe it's health, whatever it may be. God is saying, do you trust me with this? Yes, it may be painful in this moment, 
Yes, you may not see the victory that exists on the other side, but I guarantee you, if you stick it through, you will notice that your suffering has a weak spot and that you can conquer anything that is coming against you today. You know, I can't help but think of my wife, Tiffany. Most of you know that she has this chronic illness and it is very defeating. I've seen her at moments when she's the lowest of lows where I can't help but cry because even I feel powerless to do anything. And it's easy in that moment to feel like the hunter is in control of her life. That it's taken such a hard route that there is no hope for a better future. That there is no hope for healing. That it's just going to be this depressive state of pain and agony for the rest of her life. But I am encouraged by her because I get to see her push through that pain every single day, knowing that her God has something greater at the other end of it. That her God has something far more powerful than even I can possibly comprehend. And this is what God wants us to realize today. You may have your suffering. You may be struggling right now with something in your life, but God is saying, don't lose hope. Don't give up because I am with you. And I'm gonna help you defeat whatever hunter may exist in your life. You just got to give it to me and stay in the fight. Are we willing to be a super fan of Jesus? Let's pray. Father, God, I pray that we not be ashamed of your gospel. Father, we not be ashamed of you, but we would boldly go and we would profess the name of Jesus, that we would profess victory in your name over whatever it is that's holding us back today. God, whatever it's dragging us down, whatever we're holding on to, whatever is just defeating us and making us crumble on the inside, Father, I pray that you just allow us to claim victory over that here. God, that you would encourage us. God, that you would empower us. You would allow us to prevail even when times get tough with a reassurance that, God, you are there. You have something far greater for us than we could ever possibly imagine. So, Father, today we just submit these things to you. God, we choose to be super fans of you, even in the midst of tragedy, in the midst of sorrow, in the midst of doubt, in the midst of fear, in the midst of depression, in the midst of struggling. God, we submit it all to you. We love you, Father. We pray this in your name.